Good morning, church family. It is good to be with you uh, today. That is a very appropriate song for us to sing as we head into our sermon today. We are in the midst of a four-week sermon series entitled, Not a Perfect Christmas. And I want to go ahead and read to you uh, the description of the sermon series, just so you can be reminded of, of where we've been and where we're headed today and, and next week. Let me read for this, uh, this to you. Not a perfect Christmas. A global pandemic. Record unemployment. Societal unrest. A faltering economy. Disappointment and distance in relations, relationships. Escalating crime. Another contentious election. Quite simply, 2020 has shaped up to be the most difficult, shaped up to be a difficult year. This Advent season, we will consider four difficulties presented in the incarnation narratives, considering how Jesus' sufficiency answers our deepest hardships. This year won't be a perfect Christmas, but in the midst of trial and difficulty, we have a perfect Savior. So in this sermon series that we've been in, we've been examining the birth narratives. And we've been examining how, how we see that, that God helps his people through all types of unexpected hardships. Now, in week one, uh, Dr. T.J. Betts taught on the sovereignty of God over life-altering circumstances. Joseph and Mary, they know just a little bit about life-altering circumstances. Last week, uh, Dr. Adam Howe looked at God's sovereignty in dealing with scandal and how we are to have hope through that. Certainly, Joseph and Mary knew something about going through a scandal. Uh, next week, Pastor Jeff is going to be looking at God's sovereignty as it relates to the spiritual warfare that was surrounding the birth narratives. But today we look at God's sovereignty as it relates to our, our material poverty. So that's where we are, are headed today. Uh, turn your attention to the screens. I want to read for you a, uh, a uh, quote, uh, something I saw on uh, Facebook about a month ago. This is going to stir the pot just a little bit for some of you. Uh, this is a quote from uh, Dan DeWitt. You may remember Dan, who was uh, the dean at Boyce College a, a number of years ago, or several years ago. He says this, the real question isn't when should you start to listen to Christmas music. Uh, that's obvious, you should never stop. The real question is at what point do you begin to exclusively listen to, Chris, to Christmas music? Now, some of you just cringe when you read that, right? Uh, the, the idea of listening to Christmas music all year round. And I don't know about you, but it certainly seems like uh, the celebrating of Christmas started earlier this year. Is it, is it just me or does it, it seem like it's true for, for, for all of us? And, you know, I grew up in a home where, you know, we did not uh, celebrate Christmas at all. We didn't put up any cre uh, trees, no Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. Now, does anybody still uh, ascribe to, to, to that, uh, that policy? We got an amen. Okay, we see, we see a, a, a faithful, godly remnant is still around, uh, but we have seen a lot of celebrating of Christmas this year already. I think that has to do with the fact that it's been a depressing year. You know, we need something to be happy about, so let's start to celebrate Christmas a little bit earlier. You know, I also think this gave a great excuse uh, for those early celebrators uh, to kind of push the envelope and, and get the celebrating going a little bit earlier uh, than normal. For me, I remember coming home from work one day 
uh, and the Alexa was playing Christmas music. And I thought to myself, we are two weeks from Halloween, people. There's got to be some guidelines and rules uh, in this home. But, you know, I have a couple of girls in my home that really love to celebrate Christmas. They, they, they like to listen to Christmas music all year round. So, you know, we do it very democratically in my home. Uh, I vote on when we should start. Lydia votes on when we should start. She wins the tiebreaker. So we start when she wants to start celebrating uh, Christmas. Maybe that's how it works uh, in, in your home. But we have been celebrating Christmas for a number of weeks, nearly months at this point. We've watched a lot of Christmas movies. Uh, I kid you not, we've been to the drive-in. We've seen The Grinch twice. Uh, we've been to the movie theater. We've seen Elf twice at this point. This is ridiculous, I know. And uh, maybe this is like your dream. I don't, I don't know, but this is not necessarily my dream. But if you watch enough Christmas movies, especially the older ones, you begin to see that uh, there's a trend. There's a, a similar story in a lot of these, of these movies. And the storyline oftentimes revolves around the main character searching for joy. Okay, that's really oftentimes what these movies are all about. Some of them are searching for joy, even though they have wealth, they can't seem to find joy. Others don't have wealth, and they're seeking wealth, thinking that's how they'll find their joy. Let me give you two examples. Last week, we watched, of course, a Christmas movie. Uh, we watched the, the, the best version of A Christmas Carol, A Muppet Christmas Carol. And you guys are very familiar with Ebenezer Scrooge and his story. Not a nice guy, not somebody that you know you probably want to spend a lot of extra time with. He, he's a grouch, he hates Christmas. And here's a guy who thinks that he's going to find joy, satisfaction in life through wealth. Uh, but it doesn't happen for him. And I hate if I'm, uh, if I'm ruining this story for you. Hopefully you, you, you're familiar with the Christmas story. You've had time to watch uh, this movie and read the book. But nonetheless, but, but Scrooge, through a series of, of uh, encounters that he has through the ghosts of Christmas past and present and future, he comes to realize uh, the, the foolishness of his life. And in his brokenness, he realizes just the futility of trying to find joy in pursuing material wealth. So you have Ebenezer on one side. He has all the money he wants, but he's not joyful. He's not happy. Another movie, one that happens to be one of my favorites, one that we watched on Christmas Eve every year growing up, uh, was It's a Wonderful Life. We would go to the Christmas Eve service, we'd come home, eat a meal, then we'd watch It's a Wonderful Life. That was, that's what we did. And um, now this is the story of George Bailey. Now George Bailey is an aspirational young man, isn't he? Uh, he, he he's got all these dreams of going to college and he wants to see the world. He wants to build bridges and build skyscrapers. But what happens to him? Life happens, doesn't it? And, and things don't always go the way he wants. He ends up having to take over his dad's business, the Bailey Building and Loan. And, and he's trying to find satisfaction in this, but he can't quite get there. And through a series of events, again, I'm sorry if I'm ruining the movie, but you've had time to watch. But through a series of events, uh, he, 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 he kind of hits, hits rock bottom. And he loses all of the, the money from the building alone. And, and what happens is he is just broken man. He doesn't even want to live any longer. And there's two scenes that kind of, I, I, I kind of, kind of uh, give us a good picture of what this movie is all about. It kind of summarizes it. Both of these scenes happen in, in George Bailey's home. If you remember, it's this old, drafty home. Uh, George hates this home, but this is the home that, that he has. But there's a scene in about the middle of the way through the movie when he's going up the stairs. And if you remember the stairwell, the very bottom of the stairwell, the baluster there, the, the top of it's broken. Do you remember? You, maybe you've seen the movie. He picks up that, that broken piece, and he is very frustrated. And it looks like if you watch that scene, he's getting ready to throw it, but his hands are shaking, and it takes all the might he has and to muster, and he sets it back down. 
And, and, and the reason that was so frustrating to George is because it symbolized his life. It was broken. It wasn't what he had wanted it to be. But what happens to George? He has this amazing encounter with an angel, Clarence. Not a typical biblical angel that we might uh, think of, but Clarence comes and visits him. And through a series of events, George comes to see that he really does have a wonderful life. Clarence helps him to see that, George, you've been focusing on all the things you don't have, but you, for, you, you failed to see the joy and the blessing of all that you do have. And at the end of the movie, George comes rushing back into the house and he wants to see his family. And, you know, the police are there to arrest him and he's so joyful. He doesn't care. He's running up those stairs and that, that broken piece off that baluster comes off again. And this time what happens? He doesn't throw it, but he begins to kiss it, right? Because in that moment, he realizes, I have a great life. I have a wonderful life. But, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge and George Bailey, they, they were learning the same lesson, that enduring deep-seated joy, it's not found in wealth. It's not, it's not found in the pursuing of financial gain. As Christians, we understand that deep-seated, enduring joy is found only in loving God and subsequently in the loving of others. Rich in God. That's an expression I want us to, to, to remember today. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember rich in God. That's an expression that my daughter, Riley, will often say. It's something that she picked up a number of years ago. But it's not, it's, it's, it's not unusual for Riley to say, for instance, if we are driving past a home, it's a large home. My kids always call them mansions. Um, my son will comment about like how they must have all the cereals in all the world. That's what he envisions rich people do. They have all the cereals in all the world. And Riley will say, you know, they are rich, but I hope that they're rich in God. That's a great thing. Our children sometimes teach us things. They remind us of things. Sometimes in our home, we'll be talking about things we want to do, but maybe we don't, we don't have the finances for it. And Riley will say, well, at least we're rich in God. That's a great reminder. It's actually a, a biblical expression. If we were to flip to Luke chapter 12, there's the parable of the rich fool. And if you remember at the very end of that parable, Jesus says this about the rich fool. He says that he was not rich toward God. But you know who was rich toward God? Mary and Joseph. You know, they were a young couple, but they were wise beyond their years. And they were rich in God. And they were rich in God because they knew the vanity of pursuing the things of this world. They were rich in God because they knew that, that all that they needed in life, God was going to provide. All that God was calling them to do, God was going to give that to them. They were rich in God because they knew that an abundant life, when Jesus talks about the abundant life, it's not in the abundance of possessions and, and material pursuits. But it's found in the abundance of knowing and loving God. And not that there's anything wrong with having wealth and having things. Those things are fine. But we also understand that there, there is a, a danger that the Bible tells us when we pursue those things with, with our heart. And, you know, truth be told, it's been a kind of a crappy year, hasn't it, for a lot of people financially. You know, we've heard as, as, as a pastoral staff, we've heard a lot of stories from you. Stories of lost jobs, um, cut hours. Maybe you've had to transition into a new job. Uh, there, there, there's one story after another we've heard this year, and we know it's been hard. And I'll tell you what, the, the American-style Christmas, that doesn't make anything any easier, does it? You know, you have all these expectations of all the things you need to buy, and you've got to keep up with what you did last year, and maybe you're traveling this year as well. So it's a very stressful time for some of us financially. It's a very discouraging time for some of us financially. My hope is as we open up God's Word today that this will be a soothing word to you. It'll be a reassuring worry, word to you. You may have come in here worried about your finances, distraught, stressed out. 
But I hope that as we open up God's word and, and, and the truth of scripture comes out to us and it comes alive in a, in, before our face, I, I hope and my prayer today is that we walk out of here understanding that wherever God has us, that's okay. That's, that's part of God's plan. And let us be satisfied with where he has us. So I'd like for us to turn uh, and take, turn our attention to Luke chapter 1. And what I wanted to do, I want us to see four reassuring reminders. We need reassuring reminders, don't we? I want us to see four reassuring reminders from a lowly couple. And the first reminder is this, that being rich in God means understanding the blessing of your neediness. Being rich in God means understanding the blessing of your neediness. Now, neediness doesn't feel like a blessing all the time, does it? It doesn't, but it is oftentimes true. In Luke chapter 1, the Lord sends the angel Gabriel to the virgin Mary. And what does he tell her? He says that, that she's going to have a child, and this child is going to be the son of God. Now, Mary responds with a very good question. Uh, she says, you know, how can this be? Now, I'll be honest with you, I've never been a pregnant virgin but I would imagine that I would have questions uh, as well. And, and here's the point. Let's slow down for just a moment. Let's be reminded that, you know, God is not disturbed by our questions. You may be going to God on a daily basis saying, Lord, I do not understand. This isn't what I pictured for my life. Why do you have me here? Why do I have to struggle? What are you trying to teach me? God is not disturbed by these questions when we ask out of faith. And what does Gabriel do? Gabriel answers her. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive a child. This child will be divine. And it's as if he's saying, if you don't believe me, I'm going to one-up you right here. Your, 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 your relative, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, you know the one that's old and barren and never been able to have a child? She's going to be pregnant as well. So Mary comes to see that, 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 that God through her womb is going to change the course of history. And in all the places, in all the world that God could do his most important, best work, he chooses to do it in two humble women. One who is old and barren and the other that is young and virginal. And, and Mary is so moved by this vision from the Lord that she breaks out in song. I had so hoped this morning that we would sing Mary Did You Know because we could have said, yes, Mary knew because an angel came to her and said, this is what's going to happen. You are going to give birth to the Son of God. And she is so moved. And what I want us to take note of in this song that Mary breaks out into that we call the Magnificat, notice Mary's heart. Mary is lowly. She is a humble person. The, the, the world would not have picked her for this role, but God has. And notice what she, what she says. I want to read to you verses 50 through 53. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What fills Mary's heart with joy is that she knows that not only does God care for her, but God cares for her enough that he is going to act on her behalf. He is going to show mercy to her. And Mary, she knows that she's not self-sufficient. She knows that she's going to need God's help to get through these next several months. And what's clear from, from Mary's words and what's clear from all of Scripture is that, you know, God doesn't show partiality to the rich or the powerful, does he? 
Now we do in our sinfulness, we show, we show partiality to those that might be able to elevate us or, or give us or bring money into, into our bank account, but that's not what God does. And why would God do that? Why would God show partiality and favoritism to the, to, to the rich and to the powerful when more often than not, those things are substitutes for God rather than things that point people to God? You see, the, the danger of being full in this world and having everything that we want is that we begin to imagine our own power, we are sufficient. Last night we were in the car coming back from a youth event and my kids for some reason were talking about if they had all the wishes that they ever uh, wanted, what would they wish for? And, and Will starts off with, I want a trillion dollars. And, and he asks me, dad, would you want a trillion dollars if you could have a trillion dollars? And I had this message in the back of my mind and I'm thinking, I don't know, do I want a trillion dollars? Where would I be spiritually if I had a trillion dollars? When I began to feel like I'm more sufficient in myself, would that even be a good thing? But this is what God does, right? He flips things on their head. Because in, in God's economy, it is better to be lowly. It is better to be needy and to understand that, that we aren't self-sufficient because the posture of our heart is better positioned to receive God and to receive his truth. Our material poverty drives us to a greater awareness of our spiritual poverty. Our material poverty drives us to a greater awareness of our spiritual poverty. I read a number of articles this week uh, discussing why is it that religion thrives in countries that are more poor? Uh, it was interesting. I wish I had time to, to sit here and talk to you about uh, all the reasons that these secular authors of these articles gave. But it is true. And history has, has bared this out, that the more wealth you have, the less likely you are to be committed to God. And this is a danger of our world. Again, not, not, not that there's anything wrong with having wealth, but we need to understand that there is a danger there. But being rich in God means understanding that there is a blessedness to knowing that you can't do this on your own, that you're going to need help. You know, a second reminder that this lowly couple gives us is that being rich in God means trusting even when life is out of your control. Has anybody felt like life has been out of your control lately? You've had plans this year. It hasn't gone over very well, has it? And, 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 and this is what 2020 has brought to us, but it's been a good reminder that we need to trust God even when we can't control things. I want to read for you the first seven verses of chapter two of Luke. These are verses that you may be reading in your own home over the next several weeks. Uh, beginning in verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room, no place for them in the end. The first thing we notice from these seven verses is Luke is such a historian, isn't he? And what he does is he places the, 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 the birth narrative in historical context. And why does he do that? He's communicating to us that, that this is something that actually happened. This isn't a, a fictional story. This isn't a story based on a true story. This is a true story. This actually happened. And he references Caesar Augustus. And again and again in Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament with King Nebuchadnezzar or King Cyrus or in the New Testament with Caesar Augustus, we see that, that, that God, again and again, he, he uses rulers to fulfill his plans. 
And we know in his plans from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and this is a, a prophecy that was given 700 years prior, that there was to be a census at this time, and that was to bring the family back to the city of Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 5, we read this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for, for me one who will rule over Israel. So to the world, what do Joseph and Mary look like? Insignificant people. They're just pawns that Caesar is using, right? But that's not what it looks like from a heavenly perspective. The only control, the only power that Caesar has is that, is that which God grants to him. Now consider this travel that they have, they're, 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 this journey they're going on. It's an 80 mile stretch. Now, some of you in this room have been pregnant before. And can you imagine riding on the back of a donkey 80 miles on, on rough terrain, uh, cold nights, dusty roads? This is not a good situation. This is not conducive uh, for, for an engagement, uh, engaged couple, is it? And I can imagine like they're on the road and they're talking and, you know, Mary's like, you know, these taxes we're getting ready to pay. Caesar better fix these roads because these roads are rough. But you can kind of just imagine some of the conversations that they might be having. And this is a very stressful situation for this family. You think about Mary, 13, 14 years of age, just as a young girl. And, and you know, here the, the reality is the fetus in her womb is sinless, but she is not. And she is going to have some of the same struggles that you and I have. And can you imagine, you know, having your first child away from home, you know, away from your mama, away from your friends, you know, away from Baptist East and the position that you've hand-selected, all of these things. This is very stressful on Mary and Joseph. And also, you know, they're not able to go to Priceline and book the hotel before they get to Bethlehem. They get there. It's a busy time. A census has been called. They can't find adequate housing. You know, usually at a minimum, uh, innkeepers would provide travelers with some type of a stall that they could stay in, that they'd have a fire to cook on. They'd have uh, a feed for their animals. But those weren't even available. So when we in envision where they were at, it was probably some type of courtyard. Where, where animals or, or travelers would tie up their animals. This is the setting where the Son of God would be born. And, and Jesus is born in a manger. This is not a typical king-sized bed, right? <laughs> this is not a, a great situation. But what we, what we realize here is that God is still going to provide them everything that they need. You know, so often we think about Mary in the story, but this isn't an easy situation for Joseph as well. I've got a quote up here on the screen I want you to read. This is from R. Kent Hughes in his book on, on, his, on the book of Luke. And he writes this, Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did, seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, the humiliation, the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame at not being able to provide for young Mary on the night of her travail. All that would make a man either curse or cry. No question, this is a hard night. This is a challenging night. But they had the spiritual maturity to look beyond their current circumstances and trust in the goodness of God. Because you know what? Joseph and Mary, you know, they were not in control. They weren't in control. They, they did not initiate these events. They did not determine the timing. They did not organize uh, the place and dates. Uh, they did not try to manipulate the, the situation. But what did they do? They simply surrendered and trusted God to work it out. Again, that is easier said than done. But sometimes we have to tell ourselves, I know I don't feel like trusting, but I know I need to. And that's why we need to be in God's word and reading it, because it reminds us of these truths. 
A third reminder I want us to see from this lowly couple is that being rich in God means knowing God will provide you exactly what you need at exactly the right time. God's gonna provide for you exactly what you need at exactly the right time. Jump to, to Luke chapter two, verse 21. And we read about the circumcision of Jesus. It says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You can imagine that a week has passed since uh, the birth of Jesus. And at this point, Mary, she's still recovering uh, from the delivery. And in, in Luke describes Jesus' circumcision in, in a single concise sentence. And we ask, well, why is this important? Why did Jesus need to be circumcised? Well, they're a good Jewish family. And they're adhering to what was uh, given to them in Genesis chapter 17, uh, that all Hebrew males should be circumcised because without it, Jesus couldn't be identified with his people. But second and most importantly, it's on the eighth day that a child was officially named. And you have to remember, you know, Joseph received a message from an angel about what this baby's name should be. And Mary received a message from an angel about what this name, the, the name of the baby should be. And let me just tell you, if you receive two angelic encounters and give instruction, you should probably follow them. You know, so they probably had a name list like every, every couple do, uh, has. But I bet Jesus went to the top of it when they received uh, these encounters by the angel, right? So he is named Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. And, and, and I think one of the things that is important to remember is that it's been a long nine months for Joseph and Mary. This had to have been a very satisfying moment to be able to finally present this baby, to be able to present him as Jesus. It, it kind of brings a resolution about what they've all been, what they've been going through over these last several months. Next verse, verse 22, I'm going to read through verse 24. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this ceremony of purification, primarily here for, for Mary, this happens 40 days after the birth of Jesus. And this is in adherence to what we read in Leviticus chapter 12. We also read in Leviticus chapter 12 why they were having to offer up two animals. Well, one animal was for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is more of a general offering. It is um, an, it's an offering with, that expresses devotion to God. And it also uh, communicates just an unworthiness of, 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 of the Lord's mercy. And the second offering is for the sin offering. This is for the, the sin in your life. It's an acknowledgement that you are not perfect and you are in need of atonement. So in making these sacrifices, Mary is expressing even her own need for redemption. Okay, for, so for, for these animals, uh, for these offerings, excuse me, you typically had two different animals that could have been offered up. If you were a person of means, financial means whatsoever, you would offer up a lamb. But if you were poor, then you could offer up a pigeon. So to offer up a, a pigeon, this is a humble act for Joseph and Mary. This isn't something that you would be proud of walking up to the temple to, to offer. But it's also a reminder that God provides exactly what we need when we need it. You know, when, when God gave the instructions to Moses 1,500 years prior that this is how the, the sacrifices should go, but we need to make an exemption for poor people, you know, God knew that, that Joseph and Mary would need this exemption. God knew exactly what they would need in this moment. 
And, and God, he, he, he does this, and it's just another reminder that God is caring for these people all along the way. Joseph and Mary, this isn't how they would have scripted it up, but God is always caring for them. And I, and I tell you this, don't we sometimes wish God's timeline would speed up or be a little bit different? I mean, how oftentimes do we, do we question God or maybe not verbally, but, but in some ways in, in how we act and respond to situations, we tell God what we think we know what, what's better. And, and some of you are coming are on the, the opposite end of a fire. You've been through a lot, but now you're seeing the light. God's provided. But some of you are right in the middle of this fire and God's refining you and you're, you're asking questions about why do all these things need to happen? Hold on tight. God's gonna provide for you. You know, the, the God's script for our lives is always perfect. God's script for our lives is always perfect. The script will, will be harder than we would want it to be, okay? The script for our lives will, will be harder, and the script for our lives uh, will definitely make us exercise more faith than we would want to exercise, but God's script for our life is always perfect. Again, always easier said than done, but we need to confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, I know what you have for me is good for me. I'm going to trust in your providence in these things. Let me conclude with just one final quick reminder. Reminder number four, being rich in God means realizing you need a Messiah not to make you rich, but to defeat death. We need a Messiah not to make us rich, but to defeat death. This is actually... Uh, a paraphrase of something that Adam Howell said even in his message last week. But it was so good, and it fit with my theme as well. I want to say it again. We don't need a Messiah that's going to make us rich, but we need one that will defeat sin. You know, as good Jewish people, Joseph and Mary, they would have known the Old Testament scriptures. They would have known the Messianic prophecies. And, and, and I wonder, as, as they're growing in their understanding of who Jesus was going to be, what they thought about these Old Testament prophecies. As they started to think about all the things that, that this child in their home was going to do, what did those conversations look like? You know, did, did they look at passages such as Ezekiel 37, and did they think to themselves that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the restoration of God's people? If you remember Ezekiel 37, this is where, you know, God's people are in disarray. They are, they have, they've been in captivity in Babylon. They have almost completely lost their identity. They, they don't know if they're ever going to be restored and returned to, to Israel as they were previously. But, but God gives Ezekiel this vision. And this vision, in the vision, Ezekiel sees this valley of very dry bones. There's no life to them. But the Holy Spirit comes along and breathes life into these bones. And they begin to take on flesh. And this is all symbolizing that God is going to restore his people. But what does Ezekiel say? He says that they are going to be restored under one Davidic king. Well, just a little history lesson. Israel hasn't had a king in all this time. So are Joseph and Mary, when they're sitting around, are they thinking to themselves, Jesus is going to do this. Israel will finally be restored. There will finally be a consummation of all these Old Testament prophecies in Jesus. That would have been just amazing. You know, I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. And I'm just going to be honest with you. If Jesus is in my home, I'm thinking he can get a good football scholarship because nobody can throw the ball like Jesus. You know, you think of all the things Jesus could do well. Joseph is a carpenter. Imagine the things that he's going to be able uh, to build. Nobody's going to know the lottery numbers coming up like Jesus. Jesus knows all things. You start to think about these things, but that's not where Joseph and Mary's mind went. We don't see any indication of, those types of, think, of that type of thinking at all. They were focused on eternal riches. 
They weren't worried about a third car, a second home, because what are the value of these things in terms of, uh, from a heavenly perspective? There, there's such little value in all of the things of this world. And that's why I think that if you were to ask me, were Joseph and Mary content when, they, when Mary had to give birth in a delivery room that smelled like manure? Because it would be really hard for me to be content if my wife was giving birth to in the delivery room that smelled like manure. I think they were content. Because they understood that even though that Mary was delivering Jesus from her womb, they also understood that Jesus was going to deliver them from their sin. And he was going to redeem the people of Israel. At the end of the day, we don't need earthly riches. We need to be rich in God. Let me close with this um, a couple years ago, I was in Ethiopia on a mission trip. We were, um, we were visiting the children of Five Loaves Ministry. And when you typically go on these trips, you'll usually spend a day going into the homes of some of the children. These are always very challenging moments. Um, they're very, they pull at the heartstrings. I remember going into one home, and I would say the home was probably about 8 by 12 feet. Uh, there were three people living in it, a mom and two boys. And when I looked at the kids where they were sleeping, it was a stack of maybe seven, eight, nine cardboard boxes, and that was their bed. That's very hard to see. As an American, you want to go down to the marketplace, buy them a mattress, and bring it back, right? Because that's what we want to do. We want to fix things. That's, that's our, our nature. And that, that's not all bad. But you know, at the end of the day, that, that, those boys, as much as we want to give them a ceiling mattress from Macy's, that's really not what they need at the end of the day. What they needed is the message that we went there to tell them. That is the message of Christ, that Christ is their redeemer, and they need to be focused on being rich in God. Because at the end of the day, ask Ebenezer Scrooge, all the money in the world isn't going to fix all of our problems. It's not really going to make us happy because deep-seated joy is found in Christ Jesus alone. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each one of us that we would look at the birth narratives and we would see that, Lord, we all have something to learn from them. And one of the things we have to learn is that we need to guard against being too focused on earthly possessions and being more focused on being rich in you. Lord, I pray that we would have the maturity and the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, tells us that, that he was not just content when he had much, but he was also content when he had little. Lord, help us to be content and to find joy wherever you have us in life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.